Let's separate the Coke family from the oil majors in that the oil majors aren't afraid of carbon pricing. They know it has to happen. They just want it done where there's the highest degree of certainty possible, which a carbon tax is the highest degree of certainty you can get for business in general. By building relationships with small businesses around the country, we're creating a network that is an enduring resource because we will get a price on carbon at some point, but we won't be done. Is an economy-wide carbon price worth pursuing in a politically divided United States? We hear the case for why it is. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental politics in America. And I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media. Carbon pricing is an inherently conservative approach to combating climate change. The concept aligns with classic conservative principles on small government and rooting solutions in the free market. Advocates say an economy-wide carbon tax would send a clear market signal to emitters while accounting for the externalities and risks that fossil fuels pose to the U.S. economy. But for all the talk of the free market and economics, most Republican lawmakers find a carbon price toxic. And yet, in recent months, several conservative carbon tax proposals have emerged at the national level, including legislation introduced by Republican Representative Carlos Cabello. And these proposals are shaking up the usual partisan dynamics on climate policy. And this isn't just a federal policy action. In November, Washington state will vote on Initiative 1631, which would impose a carbon fee of $15 per ton in 2020, rising each year to about $55 per ton in 2035. The carbon price proposal has emerged as one of the most expensive ballot initiative battles in Washington state history, with oil companies spending more than $20 million to defeat the measure. If approved, Initiative 1631 could serve as a model for other states to follow. If not, it would deal a crushing blow to Washington's climate community. Meanwhile, carbon pricing advocates aren't giving up on Washington, D.C. As the Trump administration continues to roll back Obama-era climate policies, activists from across the United States are moving forward with a national carbon pricing proposal that they believe can gain bipartisan support. In this episode, we speak to leaders of the Citizens Climate Lobby, a nonpartisan grassroots advocacy group focused on drumming up political momentum to pass a carbon fee and dividend proposal. We interviewed CCL Executive Director Mark Reynolds and Harold Hedelman, Director of Engagement for CCL's Business Climate Leaders Initiative. We talked to them at the GAP headquarters in San Francisco on the sidelines of last month's Global Climate Action Summit. The we here being me, along with Brandon Hurlbut, former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, our Democrat on the show, and Shane Skelton, former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, who is our Republican. Mark and Harold from CCL make the business case for carbon pricing and explain why they believe a bipartisan federal carbon bill can, and eventually will, get passed. So Mark Reynolds, you're the executive director with Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. And we want to hear from you what exactly CCL asks for when you walk into these policy discussions. Because as an organization, you're all across the country. You are bipartisan. Uh, you have various action days, I know. When you go in to meet with lawmakers, what is your message? Okay, good. So 
most people are familiar with uh, um, data that 97% of climate science are convinced based on the evidence that man-made global warming is happening. What most people don't know is there's almost that degree of consensus amongst economists that the most efficient way to deal with global warming, climate change, is to put a straightforward fee on it. So what we've been asking for for the last nine years is a steadily rising fee on CO2 and other greenhouse gases, and that every single dollar from that is returned to American households so that we don't fund different projects, which there's plenty of good projects to fund, but you give all the American households uh, money back for several reasons, including most Republicans in the House have signed something called a Grover Norquist tax pledge, which obligates them not to vote for any new tax that grows government. This doesn't grow government. So they can still honor that pledge and vote the right way. And then the second thing is, um, what most people don't realize also is, is the vast majority of people's carbon footprint is actually in what they buy not their energy use. And so people at the lower ends of the economic spectrum don't buy a lot of stuff. So they end up coming out really, really well under this scenario. And to be clear, the proposal you have is a $15 per metric ton of CO2 equivalent fee on carbon emissions. And that escalates by $10 per metric ton each year, correct? Um, And then Again, this money goes right back to households. Um, are there any other pieces of the policy specifically that you talk about? Yes, the, um, there's a border adjustment. So one of the things that you want to do is, is if you put a fee on carbon in your country, you want to make sure that that doesn't create uh, manufacturing uh, lack of competitiveness with other countries. So we've talked to a lot of world trade organization experts. We've studied GATT language. And you could put a border adjustment in place so that if other countries don't put a similar fee in place, you could charge it at the border. Now, that's what, not what you want to do. You don't want to create some new bureaucracy to charge a fee for imports. What you really want to do is incentivize other countries to create policies where they have similar carbon pricing. Mark, it seems like we're making a lot of progress on the power generation side. We've been talking a lot about SB100 on the show. So now transportation is responsible for many, you know, I think it's 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions. How does the carbon fee Uh, have an impact on the transportation sector? Does it get us where we need to be? So that's one of the reasons that economists love a carbon tax, as contrasted with, say, California's cap-and-trade law. So cap-and-trade laws tend to cover stationary sources. They're starting to get upgraded to include transportation. But once you have a carbon tax, or we call a fee in place, then you're driving incentive throughout the entire economic system. So it's not just covered entities, but everybody has a reason to be carbon virtuous, including consumers. So for instance, my wife and I share one car. Uh, I ride my bike to work. We come out really well in this proposal. And so what it does is it incentivizes people to be more carbon virtuous in their transportation choices. If you if it passed, what how would that affect the daily consumer? Would it be a price at the pump? You know, would there gasoline price go up? How much would it go up by? What does it mean for the everyday yeah, consumer? Yeah, so if you if you start where we want, which is $15 a ton and then raise that $10 a year, that's about 13 cents per gallon in terms of gasoline. And obviously your electricity cost will, um, will go up. But let's be clear about something also. That's going to increase costs to business. So there is going to be some increase in cost in some of the things you buy. That's why we want to give all the money back to households. If we give all the money back to households, two-thirds of households actually get enough in the check to cover or more than cover their increase in cost. So let me pick up on that point because a lot of people forget now, but in 2008, um, Republicans, 2008, 2009, 2010, and assuming you would need Republican votes to get anything like this done, the biggest sort of target we had on Obama prior to Obamacare was 
he's a redistributionist. He wants to take money into the government and then redistribute it the way he wants to do it. And that ended up being the message with healthcare. That ended up being the message with a lot of things. And so, in addition to calling him a Muslim and being from I Kenya, I feel like you're going out of bounds, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but wait, 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 I did no such thing uh, personally. Uh, but um, so I, I guess my question is, when you when you look at this idea, the idea of you know returning it to households means yeah, you're not growing the size of government. But I'm guessing there are a lot of conservatives who would still say the opposite of what we want to do is take money out of the economy, bring it into the government, and then let the government determine who gets it back. How would you counter that narrative, which I'm guessing you've bumped into or will bump into? Um, so what we do is we actually don't give the money to the government. Uh, there's a little bit of administrative cost, but we give every single dollar back to American households. And every household essentially gets the same check. So it's not like some households get a d- different size check than others. The other side of it to think about this is, is you know when really, really wealthy people get additional money that goes into their investments, etc., people who are at the lower ends of the economic spectrum, they spend that money, right? So think about hundreds of billions of dollars that are being spent by consumers and the poten- potential economic incentive. So this is something that the business community should be very supportive of because it creates stim- stimulation in a lot of areas of business. How have they, how, how has the business community reacted by and large? You know, they're finally starting to pick up. They kind of have been on the sidelines for, I think, a little bit too long. And so, for instance, they'd say things like, well, there isn't legislation pending, so why should we use any of our political capital if there's not an actual bill? We we have things that we need to use our political capital for on the Hill. Um, but I think that they're getting to the point that a lot of people have is, is that we don't have forever to deal with this. And so, for instance, you see a full-page ad in the San Francisco Chronicle today from McDonald's talking about everything they're doing to lower their carbon footprint and that pretty soon they're only going to buy from farms who have sustainable uh, farming practices like no-till farming and cover crops. If McDonald's is doing that and exerting pressure on people they compete with, that's a good thing. Robert Gibbs is earning his money, huh? (laughs) You should note that we are recording from Gap headquarters today. We're in the we're in the middle of a corporate uh, environment, and uh, there's a carbon tax event taking place down the hall. And you know, there are a bunch of different businesses represented there. Can you actually talk a little bit more about what kind of businesses you're talking about? Because we have everything from Exxon to say a retailer, correct? Yeah, exactly. So you've got you know, Gap is here, for instance. But uh, there's an organization called the Climate Leadership Council um, based in D.C., George Schultz, James Baker. Uh, They've got, and their proposal is pretty close to ours, uh, except for they have a regulatory rollback we don't have, and they start at $40 and don't raise as fast as we do. But they've got four oil majors to sign on in support of their proposal. So it's not just, you know, businesses who might do well. It's people who have a lot of skin in the game and being successful in the extraction industry who are supportive of carbon pricing. In order to waive their liability. Yeah, that's the most controversial part of of that proposal is there's some tort reform. Right. So that would, again... uh potentially free the oil majors from any litigation or legal responsibility for contributing to climate change, correct? Yeah. we So we have about 1,600 meetings a year on Capitol Hill with our volunteers because we have volunteers that live in almost every, well, in every congressional district. We don't hear any requests for tort reform from congressional offices. So while I think maybe the Climate Leadership Council thinks that's an interesting part of their proposal, we don't hear any demand for it from Congress itself. What's the plan for 2019 in a new Congress? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question. So what we've been trying to build, so we have 43 Republicans and 43 Democrats on the Climate Solutions Caucus now. Uh, The Republican chair, Carlos Corbello, said that 
that that caucus had to exist in three phases. Once you had to get Republicans and Democrats talking to each other. We're doing that. Two, you had to fend off some bad legislation. They've done that. So, for instance, stripping bad language out of the defense authorization bill. Yeah, but not the Scalise resolution. So that's a really interesting piece also. Let me get the third part of Corbello and then I'll come back to Scalise. So the third thing Corbello said is is that they needed to start introducing meaningful legislation. And Mr. Corbello and two other Republicans in 2018 introduced a carbon tax. That's unprecedented for the last nine years, right? So the Scalise resolution has come up twice before 100% Republicans voted for it. Can you quickly explain what that is? Yes. So Steve Scalise in the last three Congresses, uh, Republican from Louisiana, has introduced a resolution essentially saying carbon taxes are bad. And so there's a big difference between what he's talking about and what we're talking about because we're saying, yeah, it could be detrimental unless you use the income correctly. So uh, in the previous Congresses, every Republican had voted with Scalise. Six Republicans voted against the Scalise resolution this time. Never happened before. A couple voted present. A couple refused to vote. And we heard a lot of grumbling on the Hill that they were unhappy about the amount of pressure they felt from Mr. Scalise. And Mr. Cabello said, for instance, why should we take options off the table? That's not what we should be doing. We shouldn't be taking options off the table. We should be putting things on the table. I I wanted to ask you about that, what you make of that. I, I made that exact point on our podcast that day, which is why would you try to solve a problem by removing some of the tools from the toolkit? What did you make of the fact of that they put the bill on the floor? It wasn't like you needed to vote on something, and so that's what they voted on. They could have not done anything. What do you make of the fact of that um, they made a point of saying, we're going to take a public stance against a carbon tax with pretty, uh, you know, not uncertain terms? So um, I don't want to sound all high and mighty here, but I think we're getting people's attention. You know, uh, it's not just that we have, you know, 15, 1,600 meetings with members of Congress every year. Uh, we're publishing four to 5,000 pieces of literature on carbon pricing. We're having a lot of public events. Uh, we're doing a lot of studies that's showing all the positive benefit. And I think that is getting people's attention. And so there are people who do not want carbon pricing les- legislation. But let's just be clear. That's not the oil majors. Let's separate the Koch family from the oil majors, um, and that the oil majors aren't afraid of carbon pricing. They know it has to happen. They just want it done where there's the highest degree of certainty possible, which a carbon tax is the highest degree of certainty you can get for business in general. Does your proposal include uh, giving up some EPA regulatory authority on this? Our proposal does not um, include any EPA regulatory rollback, but you have to be you have to be willing to have that discussion because there isn't an economist in the world who won't tell you a price is a more efficient tool for driving down emissions. All the modeling shows price getting emissions way beyond anything the clean power plan did. So to be to have an honest discussion, you have to say we got to be willing to put that discussion on the table and do it based fact-based. And why is the carbon tax your central number one issue? Instead of, say, focusing on renewables or other market-based mechanisms, why are you thinking this is the really most important way to go about this? I think there's still um, overwhelming consensus with people who treat this seriously that the price is the single biggest deal. It's not that there aren't a whole bunch of other really important things. There are. You know, we need to deal with the methane issues. We need to deal with the agriculture issues. We need to deal with the, you know, reforestation and, you know, uh, planting trees and all kinds of stuff. But the price is the most important thing. So what we said to ourselves is, okay, maybe it's the hardest piece of the puzzle, but it's the most important piece of the puzzle. So we would dedicate 100% of what we're doing to get that one piece done. Then we would worry about what was next for us. Is, is there any cap on the on the price? So it starts at fifteen, it goes no. up ten dollars a year. So it would be an indefinite program, and yeah. I guess eventually the idea would be that there would be no carbon to, to tax. 
That, that, exactly right. So that then, you know, that might create a little bit of annoyance with the public that they don't get their check anymore. <laughs> As Anthony Lizeritz from the Yale 360 Project says, you're creating the biggest special interest group in the history of our country. <laughs> what would help you be more successful? Do you need more money so you can get, you know, more resources to get people up on the hill? Do you need like a face of this that people, you know, that people can really gravitate towards? Like what, what would help you succeed? That's a really good question. I mean, being a nonprofit, money always helps, right? So if you're a nonprofit, you have a lot of your attention on raising money every year. And, you know, that's tricky and it's hard work. Both individual donations, uh, foundations. Originally, we were 100% funded from our founder. He's a guy from Waco, Texas, who had spent 20 years working on microcredit, lending small amounts of money to women in the poorest villages in the world, and then realized climate change would undo all this great work in poverty. So obviously, as you get bigger, you can't fund that out of one generous guy's pocket. So funding makes a big difference. Um, You know, I keep thinking one of these weather events is going to get enough people's attention that everybody says, okay, we get it. I mean, I thought it would be sandy. I live in California. Our fire seasons are year-round now. Um, so you, this is your Pearl Harbor moment that you talk of, right? Yeah, exactly right. Um, so now uh, you hope that that's not doesn't have inflict too much damage on the public, but it's something that gets everybody's attention and realizes that this is too important, this is too big to be partisan about it. And that's the good thing about a market-based solution is you can say this is market-driven. We're going to use the market to innovate rather than government dictum. We're getting low on time here, but I wanted to ask, how is it that you have been able to engage in this nonpartisan way? There are Democrats and Republicans. I think you're, you know, nonpartisan group inherently. How have you landed this message, particularly among Republicans, which have not, you know, set up policies on climate the way Democrats have? So, um, you know, the climate science is settled, right? And the economists, they're, they, as far as they're concerned, it's settled also. You can put a price on it. The social science tells you that you have to lead with a solution uh, and that trying to argue with people or tell them gloom and doom shuts things down more than it helps. And then we did one thing, and I think we got lucky with this. We decided nine years ago that we were going to take the most generous view of people in political offices possible and that we'd ask our volunteers that only should they ever meet with an elected official if the basis of their meeting was admiration and respect and gratitude for their public service. We didn't know what that would do to people. And so one of the things that happens when I call our donors to thank them for their donation, they go, the reason that I love donating for this company is it's made me a better person. So I think because we go in there not to find what we have in opposition with people, but to find out what we have in common with people, has so resonated with people. And um, it's resonated with the people we meet with. It's resonated with our volunteers. And I think it's really helped what we're trying to do. You're an outlier on that, I think, these days, it feels. Probably. As a group, not I'm not asking you personally, but as a group, um, do you have any interest in the outcome of any particular election? And again, not, not your personal opinion, but as a group, do you have targeted races or, or changes you'd like to see? Or is the whole idea of the group that we're bipartisan and we want to be able to, to function under any circumstances? Yeah, so we take, as, a, as an organization, we take the stance that we stay out of elections and we choose to work with whoever gets elected. Now, we encourage our volunteers as citizens to be active citizens and to personally get out there and work for people that they believe will help this cause. But as an organization, we choose to stay out of it and say, whoever's elected, those are the people we're going to work with. Is there anything that you're hearing behind closed doors in these meetings 
that they're saying to you privately, hey, we're going to get there, but we need something or any inside information you're getting that's not publicly available from these meetings? Sure. So um, we have our conference in June every year. And because we have people from every congressional district, we can see almost every member of the House and Senate. So this year we saw 507 of 535 offices. We debrief those meeting notes and then we go back in November and we say, here's what you have to say about dealing with climate change and how that's changed over time. So five years ago, what the members of Congress and their staff most frequently said is, is what about China? And that to, me, to us means, what if we do something and other countries don't? Won't that put us at a disadvantage? So that was five years ago. Four years ago, that wasn't the most frequent issue. The most frequent issue was, okay, well, you say you want this dividend. How would you actually get it back in people's houses, back to households, which we thought represented a shift in mindset from here's why it wouldn't work to tell us how it would work. The last two years, the most frequently raised issue was the Climate Solutions Caucus. Now, remember, we're only going off what they say. Now, obviously, they're influenced by what we ask and what we bring up. But I think that indicates that there is more appetite than the public is aware of for working across the aisle. And I think mm. that's why the caucus is built up. Now, we haven't done the complete analysis yet for this year. We've, we've completed our two committees of jurisdiction, Ways and Means in the House, Senate Finance. Again, the Climate Solutions Caucus was the number one issue. By half of that, the, the next one- What do you what, mean by the number one issue? Like people are that's interested what they, in They it? ask about it. They, oh. they bring it up. They ask yeah. questions about it. Uh, the second most frequently raised issue was the dividend. And the third was, and this is the first time ever appearing in, in the top three, and that was pollution and public health, which a lot of people say is a winner because it doesn't register as partisan and a lot of people are concerned with them. So we were, it's not that that's a good thing to hear that people are concerned about, but it's a good thing that people can act on, we think. We should note that the Climate Solutions Caucus is controversial. Uh, some individual members of that caucus have voted in, you know, strange ways <laughs> and, and not, you know, conducive with climate action. So I guess to quickly touch on that, I guess, what, what do you, would you say in defense of the caucus, perhaps? Yeah, I, I just want to reiterate what Mr. Corbello said um, about what the point of the caucus was. The first point was to get Republicans and Democrats talking to each other. That was important. Uh, they weren't, particularly on the issue of climate, which is the most polarized issue in D.C. The second was to fend off bad legislation. They've done that. And then the third was to start introducing things. Are there a lot of things that their caucus members have voted away that I don't like? Yes, there's a lot. <laughs> but if we he think... loses, what happens to the caucus? So if, if Corbello loses what happens to the caucus, we'll have to see. So the interesting thing is uh, when he introduced his bill, according to the Cook Report, you know, evaluating his campaign, he went from toss-up to favors R. So the early indication, at least from the from Cook, is is that it helped him by introducing the bill. But Mr. Cabell is a really, really important part of what we're doing. Uh, it's why we invested three years recruiting him as the Republican lead. We spent three years in his district because he, we thought he was the right Republican to co-lead that caucus with uh, with Mr. Deutsch. He's an 11% negative Republican district. So the odds are against him, but he's a very dynamic person. He's a great communicator, um, and right now um, things are looking positive for him. Yeah, well, it'll be a cautionary tale for other Republicans. Bob Inglis lost his job over cap-and-trade, well, my goodness, 10 years ago now. And if Curbelo, who's been the most outspoken Republican on this issue and leads this caucus, gets beat, it's a message to Republicans, you cannot support this issue and hold on. And so I, I hope that, uh, that everyone why? thinks deeply because about this. Because if he loses, it's not going to be for his support on climate. If he loses, it's going to be because he's a Republican and it's about control of the House. 
Well, he, he's been winning. It's and about so Trump. There's only one thing different, you know, about him between now and two years ago, and that's that he started the Climate Solutions Caucus and he introduced a carbon tax bill. But if he loses, not, none of that will have anything to do with his loss. I don't think that's, I mean, it is possible that Bob Inglis lost for a number of reasons, but what people know him as is a Republican who lost because he supported climate action. We'll have to leave it there and we'll be looking to see what happens to Representative Corbello in this fall's election. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Harold Hedelman is engagement director with the Business Climate Leaders Group. It is part of Citizens Climate Lobby. Harold, tell us a little bit more about that group and how it fits into the broader CCL initiative. Sure. Well, Business Climate Leaders is an action team of Citizens Climate Lobby. I think you've had a good conversation with Mark about what CCL is. BCL, as an action team, has decided to focus on engaging businesses, informing them, educating them about carbon pricing, how carbon pricing will could or will affect their business, a lot of national businesses and international businesses are already feeling the effects of international carbon pricing, and they know that uh, that's only going to increase. So they're looking to see the same thing happen in the United States because they want to have uniform operating conditions. At the same time, they recognize that the politics in the United States is particularly challenged. So our role as, as business climate leaders is to talk to these companies about U.S carbon pricing policies. And of course, our focus is on a carbon tax. I guess, how do you get businesses on board? You're saying they're starting to feel the effects of climate change. How do you get them to actually use their political capital to lobby for this solution? As, as any business people, they want to have stable operating conditions, predictable. They want to know what the price of things are going to be. They want to make major purchases. They want to know what those things are going to cost. And so a uh, stable energy pricing is going to be very important to them since that's a major component of anybody's operations. So that's one thing. The other, the other part that's really happening a lot is that, uh, as was pointed out earlier in today's uh, discussion, millennials and young people really get this issue. They want action on it. And that has one play out uh, in terms of politics. It has another play out in the workforce. Companies really want their employees to be loyal. Companies that take good actions on sustainability uh, are going to keep their employers, their employees happy longer. So there's a lot of companies that want to do that as well. I had a great conversation with a major hotel chain, and we talked about their employee workforce and how their employees would be enthusiastic about meeting with members of Congress in places where that hotel has facilities, where that chain has facilities. So for example, I'm not going to name the chain, but they've got a major hotel, let's say, in, in uh, Reno. Okay, we have conservatives in that state. They need to hear from that hotel chain. So if the employees themselves are carrying the message, along with other business leaders locally and national business leaders, then you start to get the member of Congress going, okay, I have political cover in this area. This major employer says it's okay. They want it. So that's that's one of the things that works to get business engaged. They, They want their employees to be happy, and they want a stable, predictable operating environment And at the same time, when we engage them locally, in-district, place-based advocacy, that gives us a real clout that you don't just get from a lobbyist in D.C. We see a lot of the big companies, you know, Facebook, Apple, uh, being very forward-leaning on this. Are you, what are you hearing from small businesses and how are you recruiting them to support your effort? Citizens Climate Lobby has 
chapters covering every congressional district. So to reach out to small businesses, we are training our chapters around the country to do that kind of outreach and to present the business case for a carbon tax to them. And, you know, business owners like citizens in general are all over the map when it comes to being environmentally conscious and doing the right thing when it comes to climate change. So we coach them on reaching out to the likely suspects in their community whom they may already know about and talk to them about the carbon tax and educate them a little bit about the principles of carbon taxation, not necessarily asking them to support carbon fee and dividend, which is our proposal, but asking them to study what are the nuances of a carbon tax, the initial price, the rate of increase, what greenhouse gases are covered, what you do with the revenues. And when you start to explain a values-based approach to evaluating a carbon price on those bases, they start to get, oh, well, I guess we want an effective price and we want to do something useful with the revenue. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of discussion becomes possible if you can get their ears. Business, small business owners are super busy. They don't necessarily have staff. Me and Shane are small this. business owners. We're definitely super busy. <laughs> no kidding. But we're happy to be here. I see your calendars. <laughs> They're not that bad. I'm kidding. Uh, so I guess as we... Think about moving on past this week of global climate action, the summit taking place. What will be the first item on your desk? What are you heading into the rest of the year and beyond thinking about? What are your top priorities? Uh, I mentioned carbon pricing principles, and we want to introduce more companies, both big and small, to those as a way of getting them to get their feet wet around the idea of carbon pricing. So that's one key thing. The other thing, by building relationships with small businesses around the country, we're creating a network between the businesses and the CCL chapters everywhere. That is an enduring resource because we will get a price on carbon at some point, but we won't be done. And after that, getting a price happens, that resource will still be there to take on whatever's next, whatever policies we think are the next important things to take on. So that's the kind of uh, community building that we need to have in order to really tackle all of the sustainability issues we're confronting. Sometimes the people that we interact with think a group like uh, Citizens Climate Lobby isn't moving fast enough, reaching across the aisle when you need to just move faster, elect the right people, and just bulldoze through and get your solution in place because there's no time, the science would say, to dally, basically. So what do you say to people that are maybe critical of, of this sort of slower, methodical, build an alliance kind of effort? Bipartisanship in the long run is actually faster. If you look at the history of, of carbon pricing, uh, in a, a number of countries, take Australia, where they had a price and the price goes away, then they bring it back and then it goes away again because they didn't have bipartisan support for it. Uh, it's really important to get that. And if you do introduce a bill that has bipartisan support, the likelihood that the next administration is going to take it down is much less likely. Whereas if you do a Democrats-only health bill, like Affordable Care Act, Republicans come in, they try and dismantle it, and it's chaos. So... In the long run, if you start You're saying by, Republicans are the problem. No, no, I'm saying... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I've been trained Brent, not to do that. He's all about fake news. I mean, he just, tried to, he just tried to make fake news using your words. Look, there's always uh, leaders and followers. And it just turns out that on the environmental issues, most recently, although, you know, back in the Nixon administration, who led the, the fight for the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act? It was Republicans after the dirty dozen had been kind of dispensed with, but still that happened in a Republican administration. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where we can count on, because of the young voters, 
and the politicians seeing their careers will be limited if they don't start making sense on climate. Bob Inglis, uh, a Republican, former super conservative uh, member of Congress from, was it North Carolina? South Carolina. South Carolina. Bob tells a wonderful story when he's stumping, and he says, it's my kids that made me do this, because he goes out and stumps for a carbon tax all the time now. He was unaware of this issue, and his kids said, we're not going to vote for you, Dad, unless you clean up your act on climate. Wow, yeah. It, when it resonates at home, it certainly is, I think, one of the biggest motivators we've ever seen. The, the problem was, for Bob, is that he followed his kids' advice, and then he got voted out of office. Well, he got his kids' votes, and no one else's. I think um, the, the, the quite a genuine question on that is, you know, at what point does it stop being a death knell? We talked a little bit earlier about um, Carlos Carbello. Um, if, if Democrats who, are care, you know, who care about climate are hyper-focused on removing Republicans from moderate districts who support positions like climate that are bipartisan, if every one of them, like Bob Inglis, gets removed from office, at what point do Republicans say, there's no way we can participate in this faithfully? And, and you know, I, I tend to wonder if Carlos, if Carlos Curbelo loses, regardless of what the actual reasons are, maybe there's a wave, maybe there's not. I really don't think it sends a great message to Republicans who are trying to be productive on this issue. Yeah, I would, get, I would agree with you. Carbello can't afford to ignore climate in a district where you have to roll up your cuffs to cross the street on a sunny day because of sea level rise. That's where, he, that's where he lives. That's where his voters are. He can't ignore it. He can't pretend it's not there. So he had to do something. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that what you've described doesn't happen, that moderates don't get voted out. We're such a polarized politically country that it's a shame because what we need is people in the middle to get things done. Well, thank you so much, Harold. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. Let us know what you think by tweeting at us at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. Your feedback is much appreciated. And as a reminder, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and pretty much everywhere else. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review. Finally, thank you to the Carbon Tax Event organizers for enabling us to record during the Global Climate Action Summit. Until next time. <laughs>